working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and thanks for joining us for Working Drummer Podcast. Today I talk with Gintas Janisonis, who has been active in New York as a drummer and producer for over two decades. In that time, he's compiled a list of credits that ranges from Branford Marsalis to Wu-Tang Clan, and he is currently focused on Bandit 65, a project with guitar great Kurt Rosenwinkel. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out old episodes, learn more about who we are, and purchase our newly minted merch, including t-shirts and stickers. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, or just go to patreon.com slash working drummer if you care to donate a little money each month to help keep the podcast going. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including the aforementioned merch, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as little as $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. So I met Gintis when I was passing through New York last spring, and after just a few minutes chatting with him, I knew I had to get him on the podcast. Uh, his experience is really broad. He's so damn smart. He's able to speak intelligently on just about any subject, musical or otherwise. So I'm very happy to bring you this conversation with Gintis Janusonis. You and I met uh, a couple months ago in New York. I was coming through with uh, Equinox Orchestra, and our, mm -hmm. our mutual buddy, uh, Jacob Deaton, who was uh, on tour with me, introduced us, and we met at Rockwood Music Hall in New York. Um, and I had never been there, uh, and I just found it to be a, a fascinating place, and, and it, it seemed like kind of a hub of really cool, creative music uh, in New York. So... Let's just let's just start with the night we met <laughs> at uh, at Rockwood and tell us tell us a little bit about Rockwood and and uh, you know the role it plays in the New York music scene. Well, it's become um, a kind of like one of the central hubs of the live New York music scene. Uh, you know, over the last bunch of years, because of you know multiple reasons of gentrification and everything else in New York, like a lot of venues. Have you know, closed down. Um, but Rockwood has, you know, they set up a great kind of model and, uh, you know, they, they bring in just a super wide variety of, of artists and music. Um, and yeah, they've, you know, they were been able to expand a couple times, uh, you know, to add more rooms. Right. Cause now they so got like three stages, right? Yeah. There's three stages running pretty much every night. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a real focal point of the New York music scene now. The way everything is washed out. I mean, there's tons of other great venues around the city and in you know the boroughs like Brooklyn. There's you know all these places where a lot of the same people that gravitate toward Rockwood play, like Sonny's in in Red Hook or uh, Richard Julian's place, Bar Lunatico. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Rockwood is just a really unique situation, and I'm glad it's around considering the current state of the music business because it's it's you know it's really giving a regular platform for a lot of the um, best local you know musicians and artists, and also you know touring acts right. uh, to play and get exposure in New York. So 
yeah, it's it's you know I've been playing there since they were a single room. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many years ago now already, like when they first opened. But uh, yeah, I'm really you know really grateful that Rockwood is around and um, yeah, uh, you know obviously that's also considering a you know that there are other clubs and and venues that specialize more toward other you know very specific types of music whether it be like the jazz clubs in the city mm-hmm. or like you know some of the rock places or, or places that you know cater more specifically to to you know uh, you know pop, popular music yeah. uh, rock. Um, but yeah, the, the, one of the things I think that makes Rockwood so special is the quality of the, the artists and, and bands that they get in there, but also the variety. Right, right. That seems you know? something, something that was kind of cool and unique about it, because if you, you know, if you go to New York and you want to go see some music, you, you know, you, you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to see at Smalls. You have a pretty good idea mm-hmm. of what you're going to see at, you know, 55 Bar or the Village Vanguard. And, and, you know, those places have variety too, but it's, it's kind of... Uh, in a in a certain uh, uh, vibe for for each one of those yeah. places, but it seems like at Rockwood, you you never know what you're going to get on a, on a given night. Yeah, it could be anything from like experimental electronic music to uh, just straight up you know Americana singer songwriter uh, stuff to you know even uh, you know straight up jazz. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's that's pretty much the deal with Rockwood. Yeah, and you play there pretty often. Pretty regularly, though, not as much in the last like year and a half or so, just because I've been so busy uh, with um, being on the road with Bandit 65, my band with Kurt Rosenwinkel, mm-hmm. uh, doing a bunch of production work, uh, being on the road with uh, a couple of other uh, acts. So, yeah, not as much as I'd like would like to uh, in the past year and a half. But I mean, over the course, again, of how long Rockwood's been open, I've played there more times than I could count. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just kind of the way my, you know, my schedule and my workflow has been going. Right. It's not it's not any uh, not any conscious choice. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, speaking of that Kurt Rosenwinkel project, tell us tell us about that and and you know some listeners might not be hip to who Kurt Rosenwinkel is and and the role he plays in in the world of jazz and jazz guitar, um, but he's uh, he's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I mean Kurt's a heavyweight. For sure. Um, He's, you know, been one of my favorite guitar players for years since I got to know about him when I was just coming to Boston to start going to Berkeley and he was already kind of leaving and and starting his career. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, Kurt Rosenwinkel is one of the world's premier progressive jazz guitar players, phenomenal musician and composer. Um, And he and I and... um, our other bandmate, uh, Tim Motzer, who's an amazing guitar player and producer from Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, we uh, we basically connected in Switzerland about 10 years ago where he just happened to come to a gig that Tim and I were playing with uh, an artist from Philadelphia named Ursula Rucker. Hmm. And Kurt's from Philadelphia, and he knew who Ursula was. So when we were playing uh, in Zurich, again, like this was like a, a tour like 10 years ago, um, he came, he came to the show because he saw that she was playing and uh, just he really loved what Tim and I were doing. It was just basically the two of us backing up Ursula. But uh, a lot of the stuff that we did with her kind of helped um, the evolution of our project with Kurt because he really dug what we were doing with Ursula mm-hmm. and was like, hey, we should get together and play or do something. We were like, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um 
and um, let's see. So <laughs> here it gets a little foggy because it bef- we only really started touring internationally within the last two years, and mm-hmm. we've been really busy. Um, uh, but it took about, I would say, up to that point, like two years ago, for to get get this off the ground because because of Kurt's schedule and my and Tim's schedule. You know, we, we had done a recording. Tim and I produced and mixed the recording, uh, which is available on um, his label's SoundCloud page, 1K Recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, you can Google that. It's Bandit 65 1K Recordings. Uh, the link will come up. So that was our first recording, technically. Um, but the whole process of getting that record done to the point where we were touring was probably a good six years. Yeah. Um, but I'm really excited about the fact that we finally got it off the ground and it's been happening and it's uh been getting phenomenal response um you know we're we're trying to do something different even outside of uh you know a lot of what's going on in the progressive jazz world mm-hmm. um where we're implementing you know not that people don't implement electronics but we're kind of taking it to another level yeah uh where between the three of us we have a massive sound palette right. um so, like, of, each one of you has kind of your main instrument, but also tons embe- of toys. Yeah. <laughs> tons of embellishment, tons of, like, sound shaping, you know, tools and things. Um, yeah, it's really uh, – I really love it because I've done um, kind of this self-dubbing stuff for years where uh, I'll set up a couple of extra microphones on a drum kit that have nothing to do with going like direct to the house. Mm-hmm. And then I have a pretty elaborate guitar pedal and effects rig where everything goes through. So I'm able to basically kind of remix myself while I'm playing. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the possibilities with that and, uh, the, the results that I've been getting and with kind of evolving the rig as well, uh, have been, uh, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like I'm like, getting, what, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel like I'm getting to something creatively that I've been searching for for a long time. And I feel like it's really, you know, um, just coming together and solidifying in terms of like from concept to performance or actual, you know, usage. Right. So like what's an example of of, uh, something you do to to remix yourself in real time or to, to manipulate your sound with these extra mics and these extra effects? Well, for on a basic level, there's just pure kind of ambience mm-hmm. where even if I'm not doing something that's, um, you know, really uh, effecty for lack of a better term, like yeah. we're, you know, uh, not doing specific, let's say, delay shots or something like that. I can just have reverbs or slight delays that just give an ambience that, you know, even in a small environment, like a small club, uh really creates a sound texture that you wouldn't normally get um, unless you had like your own sound guy touring with you. It just kind of leaves the control up completely, you know, to me. Right. Um, right. So that's kind of on a baseline level. But then, you know, um, I use a couple of chaos pads, core chaos pads, a couple of different versions of them, and they're chained within my, my signal chain of my rig. Um, and those have got some really incredible kind of um, – audio decimator kind of patches or glitch patches where when the signal's going through, if I hit a drum or a cymbal with a transient, it activates those and it literally sounds as if someone was splicing me up in a sampler. (laughs) 
but in real time. And, the, the, you know, uh, so I can affect the amount of slicing, you know, the depth, um, the effect amount. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's been an evolution, you know, of me doing this long before even this band. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I did some of that stuff with Lee Scratch Perry when I worked with him. Right. Uh, and toured with him. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the concept behind that. Yeah. And you know, in, in any jazz project in any improvisational project, there's, there's usually some kind of balance between the improvisational and the compositional. Um, where, where does that fall for this group? Well, that's the other thing is we are, you know, the way the band started was kind of based on like the first time that we played together, the inherent chemistry that we realized that we had between the three of us. Mm-hmm. And we started off uh, just improvising completely from nothing. And we decided to just keep that as the concept. So um, we're pretty much playing from nothing wow. every game. It's it's fully improvised, but not necessarily in the sense of like really out free music. Like um, we were really kind of conceiving of it as spontaneous composition. I was going to say, like, when, when people hear free jazz, you know, they usually think, like, Ornette Coleman and just, you know, all Or just things that are very out. Right, right. But there, and, there, and, there are a lot of groups and a lot of artists that have been doing it for years, not just recently, but a, a lot of groups that, like you said, kind of spontaneously compose. And, and even though it's free and they are improvising, you know, they, they seek to create something cohesive, something coherent, um, even yeah. though it's being created in real time. Yeah, and 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 I think we've been very successful with that. And the more we've played together, and the more we've toured, uh, it's just that chemistry and that interaction has just gotten, you know, better and deeper, and uh, to the point where obviously, like in any kind of context where you're improvising from, let you know, ostensibly nothing, um, there's a lot of room where you know uh, things could go wrong or just not develop well you know you could be fishing around for ideas but um without relying on specific musical ideas or or things to latch onto, let's say a theme of something um it's it's really about moving into the music slowly and consciously listening and concentrating as hard as possible and then having you know the security in ourselves and within each other as a group to just trust where things are going to go. And, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's just been working really, really well and it's been evolving. It's, it's, it hasn't, you know, it's something that's going to, I know is going to continue to grow and change, but, uh, it's just really exciting to play, you know, to be in a situation like this where I feel like all of my abilities and all of the skills and instincts that I've, you know, uh, that I've strived to, develop over the years are getting just absolutely utilized in every single way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it just super rewarding. We're making beautiful music that I'm really excited about. Um, and I just hope it lasts for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep going with it. I know you've done a lot of work as a producer. Um, and I would imagine that, that your producer's brain and your producer's ear, uh, you know, is, is really fired up by, by this project in terms of, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, the song craft of it, even though, like we said, it is spontaneous, it is improvised, but, um, you know, creating something crafted. Right. Yes. And, and, uh, it, uh, how can I put this? It's, um, 
it's uh, you know obviously other uh, musicians and groups have dealt with these concepts. Um, I, I just think our uniqueness is just uh, comes in as a group from uh, all the individual parts and the sum that it creates. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and you could say that about you know a lot of uh, a, a lot of great groups throughout music history and and uh, yeah, it's 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 really just based on the three of us together and and how all of our different influences um, and experiences have come together. And we're basically a band of producers. Uh, You know, Kurt has produced his own uh, records uh, and I pretty, I believe he has produced, you know, stuff for other artists as well. Uh, Tim Motzer is also, you know, great producer. He's worked with, you know, Ursula Rucker, Jamaladeen Takuma, um, a lot of different people. So I think, we're all bringing that to the table where we're, we're all musicians that have been heavily informed about the process of recording and, you know, creating modern music with all the tools that are at our disposal. Right. Um, so I think that adds to it, but yeah, I mean, you know, my interest in engineering production and, and, and writing, um, has definitely influenced me as a improvising musician and musician in general. Mm -hmm. Um, it, you know, even when I'm not working with the electronics, like for certain gigs, I really believe in using really specific sounds to optimize the music and have it be not so much about, well, this is my sound, take it or leave it. You know, this is the way I tune my drums or I, you know, present the music, you know, and that's it. I, I mean, of course, I want to have my own identity within anything that I'm working with, but, uh, I don't really worry about that not coming through because I'm changing the sound of what I'm using for a particular gig. Right. And this, this segues perfectly into, uh, or it overlaps, uh, with, uh, the interview I did, um, last time, which was with, uh, Matt Jorgensen, who's a mm-hmm. S- Seattle based drummer, composer, producer. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he talked about how he, he plays many types of music. He plays many different roles, um, but in, in all of them, he is kind of able to, to let his identity and his um, approach to music or, or his particular um, aesthetic to, to come through without, like you said, being so rigid about this is how I tune my drums, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of, yeah. It, it's, it's realizing that your individuality is going to come through in how you do what you do and what you're playing, um, but you're not having to sacrifice anything to, you know, adjust things that are, you know, going to serve the music better. Right. Uh, at least that's just, you know, my outlook. Right. Right. Uh, another um, thing, another thing I talked about with him was, you know, given, given all the roles that he plays, which is, you know, similar to all the roles you play. Do you ever sit down on the drums and, and, uh, think like, Whoa, it's, it's been a minute since I've actually sat down on the drums. Like, are, are there times when you kind of lose touch with actually, playing uh (laughs) no no because uh a i've been lucky enough where you know i uh especially over the last couple of years as as the production side of my musical life has kind of grown to match more of the level of how much i do playing wise i I would say playing you know playing and being a you know uh a working drummer is still my primary focus Mm mm-hmm uh, you know, the production thing is a, is definitely a close second. 
Um, but I've been lucky where I've gotten a really good mix of uh, kind of opportunities coming in at given times where I, I never feel completely off balance. I never feel like, oh, I'm spending three months working on a record and I have no time to shed or, or, or stay in touch with my instrument. That kind of has never been my situation. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the other the other thing that um, I feel like is very important to mention, too, is uh, being very or as as organized as possible, but being very organized with your time. Yeah. And, and realizing that you have to be strict with your time if you want to do these disparate but connected things, if you want to do them at, a, at the highest level possible, it, a lot of it is about time management. There, there are certain periods of time where I can only do enough playing or practicing, you know, for maintenance, let's say. Right, right. Versus, you know, adding new skills uh, or what have you. Um, but I think that's a, that's a position a lot of drummers find themselves in is, is having to devote most, if not all of your practice time to just preparing for the next gig or the next couple of gigs rather than devoting some focused time to, you know, some, some physical thing or some coordination or some, you know, more, uh, more drumistic thing that you've been right. wanting to focus on. You're just kind of like using every minute you have to learn these fucking songs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, it's not even just that it's, it's a, a matter of like, you know, I'm self-managed, uh, in every aspect of my career. I don't have a manager. So I have to take care of business for me as a drummer, for yeah, me I as think a producer. That, that goes for most drummers. Right. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not, saying that I'm in an, in an exceptional yeah, no, no. Uh, you know position but um, yeah it, it's just really important to figure out how to manage your time and and also uh, it's prioritization and it's hard too you know uh, you know um, we're not in college anymore you know <laughs> everybody's got responsibilities you know family house whatever yeah all the things that we have to deal with to just you know stay afloat in life mm -hmm. uh, but again it uh, I think it makes it that much more important to be really organized with your time and to really set hard priorities. Um, and when I say maintenance in terms of practicing, it's not necessarily just about like taking the time to learn music for a gig or whatever. I'm so used to that process that that kind of isn't really the thing. I, I find that I can make m musical progress uh, in terms of playing the drums as long as I'm, as long as I'm listening to music mm -hmm. and thinking about thinking about what I'm doing, you know, in terms of drumming, production, whatever, uh, I'm constantly thinking about music. And then, as long as I keep my base when I, when I'm just basically doing maintenance practice, as long as I'm keeping my facility together, I feel like I the next time I sit down, I don't feel disconnected. I feel fresh. I actually sometimes feel like I have something new that yeah. I want to work out because you know it's you know a matter of keeping the mechanics happening but then also thinking i i mean especially in new york and i'm sure you do that in atlanta when you're in the car or, or you know any kind of situation where you're not in control of your time mental practicing yeah i you know mental practicing on the subway on the bus mm -hmm. uh when you're sitting around waiting for something i, I you know i really try to uh, recognize when those opportunities arise and make use of that time as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. But it's of, hard. It's a lot of listening time for me. Yeah, 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 and it's you know it ends up being 
you know, I put myself in this situation. No one put a gun in my head to say that I had to get into production or engineering <laughs> right. on top of right. trying to trying to be a drummer. Um, so it's you know, I realized I've taken put this upon myself, and now it's a matter of keeping all the plates spinning in the air at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so far, it's I've I think I've figured out you know enough of a system where it works for me. But uh, haven't dropped any plates. Uh, not yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe chip the teacup or something, but that's about it. <laughs> You've been in New York for over twenty years. Yeah, twenty-one years. So uh, we've we've talked to a few guys from New York on the podcast. I've I've talked to Evan Pasner and Carter McLean, um, mm-hmm. Matt Jorgensen, who I just talked to, spent about ten years there, um, and you know we hear a lot about uh, how it's more expensive than ever and more competitive than ever. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Tell us something about New York that is better than it used to be for musicians. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I got to think about that one. Okay. And this is kind of out of uh, the experience of uh, what I've, told you about what i've been going through and a lot of other people in the new york music scene uh, i'm gonna give a shout out to a fallen brother tim luntzel yeah. uh one of the best bass players in new york one of my favorite bass players in the world mm-hmm. um it's the community mm-hmm. and i think the community has gotten tighter because everyone is going through the same struggles um yeah. so and and the community was great before. I mean, it was just the matter of like when I moved to New York in '96. I feel like I really caught the tail end of old New York, mm-hmm. and it was incredible, man. It was just you could jump from one club to another all night long. Everybody's playing everywhere. Everybody's seeing each other everywhere. Everybody's you know, there's the interaction. People hooking each other up with gigs or whatever. Right. And, and obviously, just New that's, York. New York itself was like dirty and dangerous. And <laughs> yeah, more, more so. It was still more Wild West and, right. and not so sanitized and locked down. And honestly, a lot of that sanitization is what killed a lot of the uh, live music scene in New York. Going back to Mayor Giuliani and his whole, you know, cleaning up New York. Right. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Project, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> uh, his, campaign. Whatever his campaign. Thank you. Yeah, that was the word I was looking for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, you know, with the passing of, of Tim, like I was saying, I've uh, gone out a couple nights to just go to people's gigs where I knew that, you know, all of our mutual friends were going to be. And so we could kind of like give each other hugs and cry on each other's shoulders and stuff and, and remember him. But it, it's been a really beautiful thing. And it reminded me of how through all the struggle, all the cats that have just made it through and have just stuck it out. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, I feel like that's, the main thing I could say that has improved is that kind of sense of community because we're all we're all struggling with the same garbage. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, took uh, me a minute to think about that one to figure out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be all dark and be like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we'll just leave the silence in there while you were thinking, just like 30, yeah. 30 seconds of Gintis staring <laughs> at the keep ceiling. Looping it. <laughs> just keep looping it for like five minutes. <laughs> Oh man, um, so uh, you uh, you grew up in uh, Milwaukee, and at what age uh, did did you go from Milwaukee to Berkeley? Was that what got you out of the Midwest? Uh, close. I first went to uh, school for a year in uh, Illinois uh, to Northern Illinois University. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because for 
multiple reasons. It was closer to home uh, yeah. than going straight out to the East Coast. And they had, um, you know, they were kind of selling the school's program as sort of like, you know, North Texas State or University of North Texas, whatever it's called now. Right. Where, you know, kind of traditional university music school environment, but with a heavy focus on jazz mm-hmm. if you were in that track. Right. But I realized once I got there that they had really oversold what it was and uh, it was just frustrating. I knew that that was not um, where I needed to be. Yeah. I already knew that I was going to be moving to New York at some point. So I just figured, OK, let me get myself at least closer to being out there. And Berkeley had always uh, been of interest to me. Um, I guess probably if it were totally up to me, like I would have probably gone straight to Berkeley right out of high school. But, yeah. you know, fam- family considerations, uh, you know, money. Um, right. um, but, uh, yeah, so then after that first year – and realizing that I had to, you know, get out of there. I, I auditioned at North Texas State um, and got in there, uh, got into Berkeley, um, and uh, just kind of had to make a choice of, you know, where I wanted to go. And I think I just, you know, nothing against Texas, but it just w- it felt like uh, a weird lateral move. Instead of getting closer to where I really knew that I wanted to be, right. it was like, okay, I'm going to go to this other random place and then – then, you know, get whatever experiences I can out of there and then, you know, go to New York. Yeah. So it just seemed Berkeley was like a better move. And uh, it was a it was a great experience in terms of my time being in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Berkeley itself as a school is kind of weird in terms of bureaucracy and, and everyone's experiences differ uh, there. But it was a great experience. I got to study with some amazing teachers in Berkeley and um, and outside of Berkeley in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, studied with, studied with Gary Chafee for about a year and a half, which you know kicked my ass then and still is stuff that I yeah, you know I'm, deal with. I'm, and, I'm and, sure he stripped you down to the studs, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, he well, yeah, and I, I did it to myself twice with him, and then also I studied with Alan Dawson for a couple of years before wow. he passed away, and totally different approaches, but uh, just you know, got endless amounts of things out of studying with both of them. Um, and then, you know, there was also just the fact that um, one of the best things about being in an environment like Berkeley is the fact that you're, if you want to, you can make music, you know, almost 24 hours a day. Right. Um, and you just get to play so much, practice so much. Uh, you're interacting with future peers uh, yeah. in the business um, so it also helped when I moved to New York that I, I moved to New York without, you know, a real solid major gig. I just moved myself there and, um, I already had a n- network of people right. that I knew from Boston and then I would meet the people that they knew from New York. So it just kept building from there. Yeah. So that's kind of like how I, you know, got to the East coast, but I, you know, Milwaukee was great. Uh, when I was coming up, um, I had very, uh, very cool parents who gave me a very long leash. I started playing in nightclubs when I was like 14. Yeah. Um, and, and they were, with, they were Lithuanian immigrants, correct? Yes. Which is, yeah, which is were. where this cool name of yours comes from. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's, uh, feels like a, <laughs> a bit of a, uh, a task to deal with, but you know, I own it. Right. Right. <laughs> Anything to set you apart, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
I remember uh, when, I, when I first moved to L.A., I was talking with my buddy uh, Jamie Tate, um, and we were having lunch, and, and he was like, uh, well, one of, one of the things you got going for you is that you're tall. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? What does that have to do with anything? He's like, well, people are going to remember you. Like, if you go to a jam session or go to somebody's gig, like, they might not remember your name, but they'll, they'll, they'll be, be like, that tall dropper. Yeah, that tall dude. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So, so, like, why why did why did jazz take hold for you at an early age? What uh, you know? Because it sounds like by the time you graduated high school, you were like, I want to go to New York. I want to play jazz. Well, I mean, it was exposure from my parents. Um, my parents, even though they're not professional musicians, were super into art and culture, and you know, would take me and my brother since you know we were little kids to go see every you know live music all the time. Yeah. Uh, Everything from classical music to to jazz to whatever, uh, you know, there were a lot of like Lithuanian American cultural events where they'd be playing like a lot of the folk music yeah, uh, and stuff. But my dad was a record collector and an audiophile, um, a low rent audiophile, as he liked to call himself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was instrumental in just lacing me with so much incredible music from an early age. And what was really cool was because he was not a musician himself, there was no agenda about what he was giving me. So, you know, I remember at one point going through his record collection, asking whether I could, you know, listen to a couple of his records. And he was like, here, you know, like, I think maybe it was for my birthday or something. He gave me a couple of the records that I have always shown interest in. And one of them was Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Live at the Cafe Boheme. Oh. And the other one was Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> so it was kind of like That's right great. off the bat. You know, but but obviously, um, you know, jazz music. I mean, I, I play everything and I don't really define myself purely as a jazz musician. Right. Uh, not obviously that there's anything not. wrong I mean, with that. Looking at, yeah, your, I mean, looking at your bio and your credits, it's just it's all over the road in, in the best possible way. Yeah. And, and I, I consider myself a jazz musician by, you know, I guess if you want to use that term. I mean, it just feels weird kind of in this day and age to even talk about those kind of definitions, but, right. uh, I guess, I guess they still are there and exist. You know, I, I just want to be the best musician overall that I can be. And mm -hmm. I guess a lot of the people that I've been most inspired by, uh, even if they are mainly known or known for being masters in, you know, jazz music, you look at their resumes and they've played on everything. Like all the class, like look at somebody like Bob Cranshaw, who is, you know, legendary jazz bass player he did so much studio work in the 60s and 70s like he's the bass player on the sesame street theme yeah you know and uh so my focus is definitely in terms of what i most desire to be doing is you know creative improvisational music but i get a lot of satisfaction out of you know playing pop music i did a great uh album session earlier this summer for a, a band that's on downtown records called vacationer hmm. that should be coming out sometimes next year and it was really interesting combination of like indie pop songwriting but all the rhythm section stuff was like 90s era like uh hip-hop golden age like boom bap hip-hop beats yeah yeah uh and it was just a really killer combination um and i got a lot of satisfaction out of doing that i guess for me the the biggest thing is about finding that balance yeah because i feel like i never get totally satisfied out of just doing one thing or another. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess I think part of that maybe is because of how music was introduced to me 
uh, at a very early age. Yeah. Um, even though I spent obviously long periods of time purely studying jazz right. and playing that music, which you have to. Yeah. Uh, at a given point, if you want to develop, you know, the highest level improvisational skills and and the you know those kind of in- musical instincts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm in a similar spot where I you know my my background is in jazz. I spent a third of my life just studying it and playing it almost exclusively. Um, and I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to to not leave it behind. You know, market myself uh, as uh, more than a jazz drummer, like owning owning my jazz training, saying yes, my training is in jazz. But look at everything I do now. Um, yeah, I think it's just you know I don't even know if you need to consciously do that. I think it's just like you know it's a I, I, because I don't feel like I ever did. I just followed the best opportunities that were afforded to me and just tried to do the best job that I could. And I, and I feel like all the things that I've done outside of improvisational music and outside of jazz, um, you know, if, if you can look at different situations from a, a certain perspective, I feel like doing all that other stuff has absolutely made me a better improvising musician hmm. and, and given me a, a, an even broader vocabulary than if I, would have just kind of solely focused on, you know, saying, okay, I'm just going to be an improvising jazz musician. Right. Right. You know, I never um, thought about that, but it, it makes sense that like the, you know, we, we think all the time about jazz improvisation, you know, uh, some, some people can translate it to, to other genres to pop or hip hop or whatever. Um, but it definitely goes the other way. You can, you can bring, yeah. you know, pop sounds, pop, playing pop sensibility or whatever to back back into jazz. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of, you know, our generation of, like, the best guys in the business that are doing it, too, like, that's what's happening. You look like at Eric Harland, or I just saw Greg Hutchison the other night playing with Kurt because they, they were at the Vanguard, um, uh, or Chris Dave, for example. You know, these are yeah. clearly, like, master improvisers, but... You know, I think the guys of our generation, um, if we're being honest about all the music that we've been influenced by, like even if your main focus is on that tradition and just following that specifically, we're products of the era that we grew up in. Yeah. You know, you, you can't deny it. Right. Um, as opposed to the older generations where, you know, jazz was the popular music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Um and and it's it's not even necessarily like a direct thing like oh I'm gonna throw this thing that I did on this gig it's just those influences just end up coming out right right kind of you know it's kind of an organic thing where uh, you know if you just leave yourself open to everything that you have inside of you without consideration of thinking like you know like oh is this within you know the right context right um, you know if it's if 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 you're if you trust your musical instincts like. And something comes into your ear at that given time. I think that's like the most honest thing that you could play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And regardless of where that thing might have come from. Yeah. You know, it's like you were saying earlier. If if you leave yourself open, then then you are going to come out in in what you're playing, no matter how your drums are tuned, no matter what band you're playing exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And also, you know, that there's the argument too with, I mean. Okay, again, you know, you were asking me before about the balance between, uh, you know, playing and doing production work or doing the other things that I do in my musical life. Then there's the issue of, you know, um, 
you know, obviously if you're not playing jazz or improvised music all the time or, or uh, and you're doing something totally different, unless you're consciously making effort to touch back into those skills and to that touch, because yeah. obviously one of the biggest things with, with the playing in different styles of music is, is the touch and the, you know, um, and the way you're, that, that you're playing the instrument. Mm-hmm. So then there becomes the issue, too, of knowing how to shift gears mentally and physically even so that, like, you know that, okay, I'm playing in this context. I'm, I, you know, I have to make a little mental and and thereby physical adjustment. Right. You know, to 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 how I'm physically playing, you know, a, a kind of music. Yeah. But, th- but that's just the adjustment for dynamics, for sound, whatever. You know, again, everything else is just your musical content. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, NotSoModernDrummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. One thing on your uh, on your resume is uh, just kind of <laughs> jumps out, uh, and it was the kind of the reason that that you and I met was because Jacob introduced us, and you knew Jacob because the two of you played on America's Got Talent together, right? With, with Jonah Smith. Um, so that, I mean, that's just a kind of you know singular and unique experience for a musician to have. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty uh, for better or for pretty, worse. <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, tell us a little bit about that experience and about Jonah Smith, because you you still play with Jonah from time to time, yeah. From time to time, but since he moved to LA, a lot, right. a lot less. Right. Um, you know, we used to be literally next door neighbors mm. uh, in in the building that I'm sitting in right now. He was actually on the, the opposite side of that wall behind <laughs> me. Uh, but yeah, I was his regular drummer for eight to ten years, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, and that opportunity came... At, at first, I wasn't even going to do that um, uh, at all. And he had asked uh, another mutual drummer friend of ours to do the show. Um, then something weird happened where there was a conflict with the other drummer and he had like you know a long-time serious gig that he was sort of jeopardizing by having to make himself available for the show. Um, yeah, it took a lot of thought for me to decide whether I wanted to do that or not. I mean, I was getting, you know, Joe, I was getting paid, you know, to do it, right. uh, outside of the show, uh, which was kind of the only way that I would have done it. Cause you know, in general, I'm not really a big fan of like those shows and yeah. what they represent and, and whatever, but you know, it was great to play. I think we did four episodes that I was on and, you know, have, you know, that many millions of people see me play with Jonah. Uh, yeah. you know, I, th- I, I, I think we did really well. There were, there were some weird things having to deal with the music producers of the show. Right. Uh, where they were just, 
trying to corral us into doing weird things that were just not didn't make sense and and whatever but you know i'm glad i did it for the experience uh uh of having gone through it but you know um how did you yeah, deal was, how did you deal with the challenge of of being directed so heavily because i think in you know aside from reality shows or whatever uh you know every drummer and every musician finds themselves in a situation where they're being directed and micromanaged more than they would like um and i think a show like that is an extreme example um so how did you how did you deal with that well i mean i just tried to um and we all tried to just do what we thought would be best, you know, uh, for representing, you know, Jonah doing his thing on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, there were just, I, I guess some of the micromanaging stuff, it's, I, I don't have a problem with taking direction, uh, especially, uh, in any situation where, you know, I'm there to serve the music. It's not my show unless it is my band and then that's a whole different context. Right. But in any situation like that, uh, I want to help make the music be the best that it can be and do whatever I have to. The hard part comes into where, you know, I, I get and in this particular situation. It was like issues of song selection mm-hmm. and what would be good for Jonah's voice and how they wanted us to approach it. So there were, there were a couple times where it just kind of felt like, you know, the producer's, didn't really act as if they were dealing with like the super experienced musicians that they were. Right. And that we were just coming, you know, off the street, whatever as amateurs. And we're like, listen, we're not trying to cause friction, but what you're telling us to do is we're we're pretty confident. It's not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And I mean, Um, a lot, a lot of what they deal with is people off the street and complete amateurs. Exactly. That's kind of what those shows are designed around, but, but they, they happen to, uh, uh, be faced with, you know, actual professionals. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, but it, but it it was cool in the end. It was just a matter of like everybody getting to an understanding of, of, you know, what they wanted him to do or what their expectations were. Um, I'm happy he did as well as he did uh, on the show because I think it, it, you know, I, I hope it did, uh, I think it gave him a lot of extra exposure that he wouldn't have had. Yeah, you guys uh, made it to the semifinals, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so it was. It, it was cool to do another and uh, do a couple of big shows too. Again at Radio City, I, which I've played at multiple times before with other you know artists that I've worked with in in my career. But it's you know it's amazing room, and they went to town on all the lighting and production. Oh, and I'm stuff. sure. Yeah, you know. Yeah the whole laser array, I think on our last performance where when we were doing the sound check, they were like telling us to look in a certain direction. So we didn't burn our retinas. out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, man, we all, we all find ourselves on, on shows or concerts or whatever that, that have a particularly pronounced showbiz aspect to them. Uh, yeah. and you know, I, I mean, I, it's, it's seductive. It's cool. Like when you get, when you get on a show like that, no matter what you're playing to me, at least the, you know, if there's a big showbiz aspect to it, I'm always like, man, this is, this is cool. This is a real fucking show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, no, I definitely, that, that part of it was, was fun. Um, usually with things like that, I love to just experience it, uh, with someone else handling it. Right. Like if it, if it were up to me, I'm just like, Okay, whatever. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. those lasers to get to, look good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was an interesting experience. I don't think I'd ever do that again. <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, uh, 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. It was definitely unique uh, in terms of, like, any of the TV stuff that I've done before. It was a totally different kind of thing versus, like, let's say playing, you know, one of the talk shows or, or, or something like that. Obviously, it's a much longer period of time yeah. and in involvement with it. But uh, uh, it's, it seems like in uh, recent years you've, you've had a couple of ventures into the, into the hip-hop world. Uh, and so talk about, talk about what you've been doing there. Well, uh, yeah, it's more than a couple of years because I mean, my, you know, about the same time that I was, you know, coming up listening to jazz as a teenager, uh, whatever else, uh, you know, that was like during the, what's considered now the golden age of hip hop. Right. And me and so many of my other friends were all so influenced. Uh, and this is going back to friends and uh, fellow musicians back in Milwaukee before I ever left. Once I moved to Boston and Berkeley, um, and so I've always been a huge hip hop head. I've been doing, you know, making beats uh, either with a drum machine or you know, doing recording myself and manipulating that to make it sound like a break beat. Right. Uh, I've been doing that stuff for years, and and hip hop music is a huge part of my musical background and DNA. Uh, just very, um, just over the last, I would say, almost ten years. Uh, I was lucky enough um, with me and the uh, band, uh, the Revelations that I was a part of, uh, we're also a production team. Uh, we got connected with RZA. Mm -hmm. um, and it started off doing first record, which was uh, it, it wasn't a full Wu-Tang Clan album. It was Wu-Tang Presents Chamber Music. Huh. Uh, so we did three of those Wu project albums with RZA uh, between like 2008 and probably 2011. Then uh, RZA uh, called me and our guitar player, Wes Mingus, to go down to Royal to play on the, the Wu-Tang's 20th anniversary album, uh, Better Tomorrow. Huh. Um, so we went down there and, and worked with Boo Mitchell at Royal, uh, which is always great. Uh, done a bunch of recording and uh, production stuff down there. Um, and then after, uh, or around the same time, actually, I think it was within the same year, Ghostface's manager contacted us to produce um, uh, Ghostface's 36 Seasons album. Um, uh, yeah, and that came out about the same time. I think it came out at the same time as the as the Woo album. So mm -hmm. we had a double dose of Woo that year. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's been great to work with all of those guys and RZA and, and Ghostface uh, especially – uh, and all of the other kind of legendary MCs who come in on the on the projects, like getting to work with people like AZ and um, uh, Cool G Rap was that, that was a huge one. He's a you know hip hop hero of mine from way back. So to have be able to have made music that he's rhymed on has been pretty great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was just again another one of those natural evolutions of of things where it was something musically that was a big part of me and that I always had kept chipping away on trying to keep my foot in in whatever way and it just over time, you know, things snowballed and all of a sudden, you know, I'm in the studio with with, with Wu Tang Clan with RZA or Ghostface right. and I'm kind of pinching myself going like, am I really doing this? <laughs> oh, and and speaking of, uh, we're, we um. Uh, we're actually going to be working with him again. Uh, we're we're going to be playing a big festival here in New York with him on September 17th. Oh, cool. Uh, it's, it's the Meadows Festival. Uh, and then also we're in talks right now for doing at least one but possibly two new records with him. 
coming up with within the year. So we'll see how how those evolve. But the the September seventeenth show is uh, we're we're in rehearsals and and pre production for that right now. That's going to be killer. Awesome. Well, this this uh, interview is going to go up in thirteen days. So you're going to be we'll be just in time. So oh, perfect. Everybody in New York, September seventeenth. Go check out Guinness. Meadows Festival at City Field. Meadows Festival. Yeah, the, it's called the festival's called the Meadows, and it's at City Field in New York, which is the, the home of the Mets. Cool, cool. Um, you mentioned that band, uh, the Revelations, um, and that was that was something I got hip to just just a couple days ago because I was stalking you online. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't know that that you led that band. I didn't know that that was one of your one of your projects, and it looks cool as hell. Um, talk about what that band is, and and kind of the the uh, the box that it checks for you musically. Um, it, uh, well, that band was born out of a studio band that I had put together for, um, the guy that was our ex manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, his, he, uh, he was instrumental in hooking us up with, you know, a lot of the good opportunities that we had. Uh, and he was the, the one responsible for hooking us up with RZA. Um, and, also, he would regularly bring in production and tracking work from other artists that he was dealing with because aside from managing us, he was also uh, uh, a label a and um, But our whole thing with that is, uh, uh, again, uh, tying into the hip-hop music influence is that, you know, when I started getting into hip-hop during the Golden Age – during that period of time, and this is including people like RZA or Pete Rock or DJ Premier, um, you know, they were sampling old soul records. Right. And these old funk and soul and R&B records. So it became a secondary musical education where you hear a sample of something and go like, oh, my God, that's so dope. What is that? Yeah, yeah. And then you dig through the crates and you find, you know, you find out what that is. So there's like the connection of, you know, hip hop and then legendary soul and funk music that I also grew up with. I, you know, I remember seeing Stevie, I remember seeing Stevie wonder playing live with his band on Sesame street (laughs) when I was like five years old at my grandmother's house and just being mesmerized. And after seeing that going, Oh my God, I don't even know what to do with myself. Like I, (laughs) I, I, you know, yeah. Um, and then playing along to like earth, wind and fire records that I got from my local library when I was coming up, like, Um, yeah, I think I've been playing can't, can't hide love since I was seven years old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, so that band was, was born out of that. And then, um, out of the, you know, all this like session work and stuff. And then our manager, uh, at the time uh, started working with a singer named Trey Williams Mm -hmm. and he was just trying to develop a solo thing for him. And the first time we recorded, it was one of those magic, uh, moments where you know the first song that i ever tracked on one of trey's demos where we were replacing all the demo stuff the way it came out uh was we all just had goosebumps like wow this is this is something else yeah and that ended up being a hit single uh in um a few regions like that actually got us into you know touring uh kind of the deep south soul circuit soul and r&b circuit all the way from Arkansas to Tennessee to Mississippi, yeah. uh, Louisiana, Texas. Well, um, having moved to Atlanta uh, almost two years ago, I'm I'm getting you know I'm I'm catching up on all this stuff now. 
um, because you know yeah. I wasn't I wasn't in the region and and I wasn't really just paying attention to it before because for for so long I was I was in jazz world. Um, yeah, it, it was really amazing to me to to get to play in that scene and see that that exists in this kind of like self-contained, um, yeah, like the self-contained like regional scene that is not dependent kind of on the regular music industry as we know it you know, outside of that world. Right. Right. I'm, I've been playing with, uh, Ruby Vell and the Sulfonics, uh, mm. which is a, an Atlanta based, uh, I, I guess they're called Neo soul. Um, but they, I mean, they've been around for 10 years by this point. Um, I'm, I'm the new guy. Um, but you know, through, through their original songs and through the covers they do and just, you know, the, the records and the artists that, uh, influenced and informed their original stuff uh i've been getting just deeper and deeper into all those great records uh in about three weeks we're doing a um a, a tribute show for the the 60th anniversary of Stax records oh wow yeah so like ruby and and a, you know a few other artists are, are just doing tons of selections from from the Stax catalog and you know i just i started going through it today uh, doing the you know all that song learning prep that we talked about, but I'm I'm listening to this stuff and my wife is listening to this stuff and we're both like, holy shit! I can't wait for this show. It's yeah, the it, best it's, music, it's, man. It, it's such great music, and and it's also when you go through the process of like digging in to learn that stuff and listening to the recordings and seeing what's really going on in detail. It's such a great uh, education of just all the details of that music. Yeah. Uh, and all the nuances of it, you know, from a production standpoint, from a drumming standpoint, yeah, everything. I just meant more in general from like a musical standpoint. But yes, the I mean the production uh, side of it as well. I the the experiences that I've had working with Boo Mitchell down at Royal have changed my life. Uh, I ended up learning a lot of uh, Papa Willie Mitchell's uh, miking techniques from watching Boo set stuff up uh, for the sessions that I did with him. Um. And, and it's just incredible to be in a studio like that where you know all these iconic records have been made and to just see like how you guys are doing it or how you know how they went about doing it, how they got those sounds and what the room was like and how that affected everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so get, kind of going back to uh, the question about the revelation. So, yeah. you know, uh, we basically started working on an album with – uh, with Trey Williams, our, our old lead singer. Um, but, and we were touring, we put out, I think three, three full albums. Um, but then there was just like, uh, uh, this project for a while took a hit, uh, as a victim of the music industry. Uh, we had some kind of a, uh, falling out with our manager, uh, over some pretty major business problems. Yeah. Um, Trey decided to, uh, get his own manager and, uh, you know, pursue doing something strictly solo, which was kind of by design from the beginning. That's why it was always called the revelations featuring Trey Williams. It right. was kind of set it up that way so that everybody could still maintain their autonomy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, after that happened and, and it kind of basically the band stopped touring and working as, a band specifically doing the revelations music, uh, about two years ago, uh, after we finished the, the ghost face record, the first one that we did with him. Um, and, uh, then it kind of became a thing where we just decided that, uh, we would just maintain the entity 
uh, as a band and, you know, keep the name, but basically just instead of trying to maintain it on the road uh, and, and deal with all those things to try to keep a band going, uh, we would just basically leave it as a production team. Mm-hmm. And we have been getting offers for some stuff internationally for, for concerts or whatever, but the problem is that, you know, uh, it, it's just kind of like we don't we don't have a lead singer anymore um, for it. We don't really have management for it. We just decided to kind of leave it as a production team. Yeah. So at this, at this point, the revelations, I mean, when we're playing live with any of the Woo projects or like with the show with Ghostface coming up, you know, that's our live entity now. But right. uh, in terms of what we're doing musically right now, um, the Revelations is, is you know, basically our production team. Right. Um, not, to, not to say that that couldn't change in the future, but we just realized that, you know, based on all kinds of different factors and, um, you know, all the, the, the business issues that I was talking about and all, the, all of those things, we just decided that was the best way to, you know, keep this kind of afloat and still make progress with it. Right. Well, speaking for myself for completely selfish reasons, I hope that uh, another lead singer appears on the horizon before long and and that the the revelations continue to to bring the soul. Cool, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> I want Well, more. we're trying to do it through whatever channels that we can right now. <laughs> right, right. Well, hey man, thanks for uh thanks for talking. It was great to great to catch up with you. Great to see you. Yeah, you too, man. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a been a real pleasure. Absolutely, man. I, I hope to uh, find myself uh, in New York again soon, or I, I hope you to find. Better call me. I, oh, absolutely. <laughs> your 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 call number one, especially if I got Deaton in tow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, or hopefully maybe you'll come to Atlanta. Yes, I hope so. I hope so sooner than later. Yes, it's been a minute. Cool, man. Well, thanks a lot. All right, thanks, Zach. Really appreciate it, man. Great cat, right? Go check out Gintis at the festival at City Field if you're around New York this weekend, uh, and I'm sure you'll be able to find him playing somewhere at most any other time you find yourself in the area. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating and review there if you please. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.